Welcome to the 180 Ministry Podcast. Please check us out at the1-80.org. So we are in our Bibles in the book of Luke chapter 5 and verse 17. The story we're going to be covering is the story of the paralytic. And as we cover this story, friends, I hope that it would be as much of a blessing to you as it has been to me. So it says in verse 17, it says there, And it came to pass on a certain day as Jesus was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Now, keep your fingers there in the book of Luke, but I want you to go with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark. Go with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 2. So we're seeing there are a few groups of people here, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, And go to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And we're going to look at verse 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. So Mark chapter 2, we are told there were Pharisees and teachers of the law. But Mark chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 tells us, And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. The, The context is that he's in actually Peter's House. It says, and straightway many were gathered together. How much? How much does it say? Many. So this goes beyond just doctors, teachers of the law, Pharisees. There's a lot of people there. It says, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word of God unto them. So with that context in mind, now go back with me in your Bible to the book of Luke chapter 5, all right? And that's where we're going to spend a good bit of our time in this message. So we're seeing here that Jesus is gathered. As he's gathered, the word goes out. The context is, according to different gospels, that he's in Peter's house. And as the word goes out, doctors of the law, Pharisees, teachers... And many people out of certain places, and they mention those places in the verse, it says out of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. Now keep this in mind, friends. If they're gathered from Galilee, Jerusalem, Judea, what can we take a guess as it relates to their religion? Who are these people? They're Jews, right? So would we be okay in saying that this is the church that is gathered here at Peter's place, right? So God's people are now gathered at at Peter's house. And as they're gathered there, they're gathered there to listen to Jesus Christ. Now I want you to look at this. It says in verse 18, at the end of verse 17, it says the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And we'll find out why as we go on. It says, and behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with palsy. This man was suffering from a situation of paralysis. And they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before Jesus. 
Now look at what happens. They're trying to find a way in, but then it says in verse 19, and when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of whom? Because of the multitude. But who did we just discover the multitude was? The church. So notice this. The very people that were listening to God were an obstruction to him. Do you see that? Are there times, this is why it's so crucial, I realize this in my own life as one who is part of the church. We must ever remember that we must be a pathway to Christ and not an obstruction to him. Does that make sense? God wants to use us. That, those people there, that multitude, what they should have done was they should have parted ways and made sure he got to Christ, but instead they became an obstacle. Now it continues by saying, and when they could not find by what way they might enter in, because of the multitude, what did they do? Did they stop? No, it says they went upon the house stop and led him down through the tiling, which means they opened up Peter's roof, led him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst of Jesus. Now, this is so powerful, friends. We're learning the first thing is that the church must be a pathway to Christ and not an obstruction that leads away from him, that prevents people from getting to him. But the second lesson is as much important as the first. The second lesson is that, notice, even though the multitudes were an obstruction, it did not stop these people from getting to Jesus. So this is, as much as it is a test for the church, it is also for a test for the person who's trying to get to Christ. The test is, don't give up. Don't allow this obstruction to stop you from getting to the man of Calvary. Regardless of what you see, and this is what happens many times in the world, people, they may say, okay, I want to give Jesus a chance, but you know, these church folk, you know, they don't really represent God. And if God is like them, then I don't want to be with God. Not realizing that what? What you're seeing demonstrated is not what God is like. So therefore, it is a great test for the person who's trying to come to overlook the misrepresentation of Jesus and still come to him. The powerful thing is they came. They still came. You know what's the funny thing though? They came risking violating someone's property. Do you see that? They went up on another man's house, broke up the roof, and let this guy in. <laughs> now when Jesus sees them, Jesus goes, what are you doing? Is that what the Bible says? No, what does it say? When he saw them, he saw their what? Their faith. Here's the third lesson. Sometimes, and I, I would say even every time, friends, when dealing with someone who is trying to get to Christ, we must overlook their actions and by the Spirit's power, seek to understand their heart. Because when you understand what's really going on internally, then you're like, wow. Okay, then I understand why they did what they did. 
And so then, maybe it may not excuse what they did, but it gives you an understanding of why. Because they were desperate for the Son of God. And that's a desperation that each and every one of us should have. So those three lessons, crucial points. One is that we as a church must ever make way for people to get to Jesus instead of being an, being an obstruction that prevents people from getting to him. Two, the world must ever realize that in times when coming to Jesus, you may not see in the people that claim to represent him a revelation of him. But thirdly, that revelation should not stop one from seeking to get to him. And then the last part, as we just saw, at least the last lesson that we were seeing, is that God, when we are seeking to get to him, he looks at our heart beyond even our actions. That's how good God is. When they got to him, it says in verse 20, and when he saw their faith, he said unto him, man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Now, as it concerns this situation of this man trying to get to Jesus, you know, it's so powerful. There's a powerful book, as I mentioned last time, in the Library of Congress, which I really believe to be an inspired book. The name of the book is called Desire of Ages. And the book actually states this as it concerns this man seeking to get to Christ. There's a journey here where this man is trying to get to Jesus. And the main fact, the main point that Jesus said to the man when he first saw him, man, some translations say, son, your sins are forgiven you, means what got this man into this state of paralysis? His sins. So when Jesus meets him, the first thing that Jesus says is regardless of what got you here, you're forgiven. Friends, there may be things in your lives that you may be ashamed of. Things that you may be looking at back in your past and you're wondering, could God ever accept me if I were to seek to come to him? And the word of the Lord is, come. As you come, and you allow me to work in you and receive you as you are, I will take you to where I want you to be. But the good news is, we don't have to do a work, then come. God says, come, and I will do a work. This is how good he is, friends. You know where this man was in at, at this state? This is so powerful as I was looking at this. The title of our message today is Why We Fear God. This is what the statement says in Desire of Ages 267. This is how desperate he was. The cry of the dying man was, oh, that I might come into his presence. There was no time to lose. Why? Already his wasted flesh was showing signs of decay. In other words, what was happening to this man? He had been in a state of paralysis for so long that his skin, his flesh was beginning to decay. So this was a desperate moment. This was a desperate situation. So he comes to Jesus, his friends see this desperation. He sees their faith and he says, man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Now in the Bible, there's a statement, there's a, there's a big word for this in the Bible as it concerns the pardoning of sin. Does anyone know what that word is? It starts with a J. 
justification. So this man has been justified. He's been forgiven, pardoned. Regardless of what he did, Christ says, you are now forgiven. In other words, it's almost like Christ was reading his heart. He knew why he was there. More than even healing, he desired forgiveness for what got him into that predicament. He knew the burden of this man's soul. Christ knows the burden on your heart. And he is able to sympathize with you in that burden. Even if, get this, the man didn't even mention anything. He didn't say a word. But Christ was able to read the innermost thoughts and answer the request that was already in his mind. Sometimes, The greatness of your past may overwhelm you so much that you may have no words to express the pain. But God understands. And God is able to say, my daughter, my son, your sins are forgiven. You are pardoned. You are justified. I forgive you. And so in doing this, this man was now made right with God. But you see, here's the thing, though. This is the funny thing about life. When God forgives you, sometimes the forgiveness is so powerful that other people can't believe God forgave you. And so what they will do is they'll bring your past up, right? They think, whoa, God can't do this miraculous change. It's too good to be true. (laughs) And so they bring up your past as a way to discourage you from believing what God has said about you. But friends, we must hold on to God and we must trust in the words that he says. And not only that, friends, God comes to our defense. God does not only justify people, he then begins to show in one's life the fruits, the evidence that one has been justified. And what is that? I tell you the truth, it is a changed life. The fruits of a justified life is as time goes along, the change that has begun in the heart begins to emanate in the life. So there's a testimony, there's evidence that, whoa, this person was truly forgiven. The problem was many people don't have faith in that reality. And so God bears it out. And we see this in the story. What happens in verse 21? It says, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this? which speaks blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but what? God alone. Which means this tells us what did they not see Jesus as? God, right? But Jesus was like, okay, you don't believe me? The powerful thing, you don't believe that I could change someone's life. You don't believe that I can justify them, that I could absolve them of their past iniquities. Here's what I will do. Verse 22. It says, and when Jesus perceived that their thought, perceived their thoughts. So notice this, they, they hadn't even uttered a word. He was reading their mind. <laughs> he answering said to them, what reason ye in your hearts? Whether is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, rise up and walk. Now let's stop there. Which one is easier for God to do? And that's a trick question, by the way. Both is easy. It's not hard. What God is trying to show them is that which you think is hard for me 
It's very easy if one has faith. If one would trust in me, I can do anything in that individual's life. Not just forgive their sins, but here's the thing. Rise up and walk would mean the reversal of sin's effects. So God is not only interested in forgiving men and women of their sins. He's also interested in reversing the effects of sin. So then what does Christ do? It says in verse 24, but that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto you, arise, take up your couch and go into your house. In other words, what? The removal of the paralysis. God wants to forgive and he wants to reverse the effects of sin in our lives. You see, sin, friends, is paralyzing. It takes the individual and it stops you from moving spiritually. But when Jesus comes into the life and he shows us that I forgive you, I no longer hold these things that you've done against you, in me, there is no longer any condemnation. Friends, it's liberating. And you can move spiritually. You can rise up and do the things that others said you could not do. Because God is now at work within. Power to remove not only sin, but sin's effects. Now, this is the evidence. What do we call that process in the Bible? It is called sanctification. The work of God not only saying that you are holy, but making you what he said you are. There's a transformation in the life to give evidence of what God has already declared. So this is amazing. Now notice this. Both of these, done, both of these are done to show us that we have this power in our hands, in our rooms every day. We have access to it easily. Notice how both of them are done. Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Once he believes, he's justified. Right? Next, Jesus says, rise up and walk. Once he believes, what happens? He rises up and walk. Both came, notice this, both the forgiving and the changing came by the word. Notice. Man, thy sins are forgiven. These are the words of Jesus. It is as we believe in the word of God, that word has creative power. And it can change the person that it is targeted toward. Jesus says, that's why Jesus says in the Old Testament, the God of creation, he says what? Let there be light and there was light. God speaks and as he speaks, it is. Therefore, it is so in the work of redemption. As it was in creation, so is it in the work of redemption. God's word has power to change us. It has power to forgive us. And whatever it says is. Therefore, when God says you are forgiven, what are you? Forgiven. When God says, rise up and walk, what can you then do? Get up and walk. 
Once we understand this principle, friends, and this principle in the Bible, there's a title for it, a phrase for it. It's called becoming righteous by faith. Righteousness by faith. Once these principles are understood in the human experience, friends, it breaks the power of sin in our lives. And it breaks the power of the enemy. This leads us to our next statement that I wanted to read to you. And this is found in an article, uh, the Review and Herald, September 3rd, 1889. This is what it says here. The enemy of man and God is not willing that this truth, in context, it is the truth of being justified. We just read about that by faith. He is not willing that this truth should be clearly presented. Why? For he knows that if the people receive it fully, his power is what? His power is broken. If he can control minds so that doubt and unbelief and darkness shall compose the experience of those who claim to be the children of God, he can overcome them with temptation. So when we believe what the word says as it concerns forgiveness, Jesus says, and what we're reading here, is that the power of sin, and how does it come? How does that sin come? It comes through doubt. Many times in our Christian walk, I've realized that, whoa, there are many times when Christians, they have a problem with trusting with what God says. That when God says something, it is so as it concerns our lives. But many times the enemy comes behind that word. Sometimes, even like he did with Jesus in the wilderness, after the first temptation, when the devil came to him again, he actually used the word. And so sometimes the enemy comes and he tries to trip us up to not believe what God has already said. Whether it be through other people, whether it be through friends, whether it be through those who are afar off or close to us, to cause us to doubt God's love for us, to cause us to doubt what he's trying to do in our lives. And what God is trying to tell us, friends, is to above every other word that we hear, we must trust him. It's almost like you're in traffic, right? You're, you're, in a, you're in a ton of people. A parent can tell their child's voice among the, the midst of hundreds of children. They can tell their voice. And it's the same relationship God wants us to have with him. Among the plethora of voices that we may hear calling us to doubt, even the trials that we may face that call us to doubt, God says, hear my voice in the midst of all that multitude. Hear my voice clearly. My son, my daughter, thy sins are forgiven thee. Now, as this happens, friends, we, we, are see, we saw the process of justification and we saw the process of sanctification. But what we're going to look at now is one of the most exciting things that I have seen in scripture, one of the most exciting things. Are you ready? <laughs> All right. So we've seen the process of justification. We've seen the process of sanctification, God changing us. And now we're going to see the process of glorification. 
Now, glorification, yes, it is true that part of glorification is when Christ comes back, he changes our bodies. That's part of it. But friends, glorification begins even before the second coming. Do you know that? For the glory of God is the revelation of his character. And so, as we look at this now, I want you to see what happens once this man is healed. So go with me to verse 25 and 26 of Luke chapter 5. This is what it says here. Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. We're coming now to the end of this story. It says here, And immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay and departed to his own house. And what is he doing? Glorifying God. Now notice what happens as all of this takes place. So the multitude, the, the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the doctors of the law, the multitude themselves that are there, gathered in Peter's house, they see the manifestation of a forgiven life. Amen? They then see the manifestation of a transformed life. Amen? Now notice what they do as they see a demonstration of what God can do in an individual's life. It says in verse 26, and they were all amazed and did two things. They glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. So notice, two things they did. They feared God, and they gave him glory. Friends, does that remind you of something? Does that remind you of something? Go with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 14. You see, I always ask myself this question. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6 and 7. I always ask myself, Lord, yes. I said, Lord, how, how is it that I, that I can go into a community and knock on someone's door, they open the door, and then I tell them, fear God and give him glory. They're going to think I was crazy. Especially if they're going through things in life. Their homes are being broken up. They're suffering from poverty. Why would I want to fear God if I'm in this kind of situation? Doesn't he see it? Hasn't he done? Well, what has he done for me? But my friends, here it is. It says in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. These are three messages that are to go forward in our day. It says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God, and what? Give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. So notice, the call of this first angel is to fear God and give him glory. But the question is, why would I fear God? Friends, when you connect this message with the story we just read in the Gospels, you realize why men would want to fear him. Because you see... When a person interacts with you and I, 
who have experienced the power of God's forgiveness. This is why God wants us to believe that he can forgive us and to believe that he can change our lives. Because when you witness for him, you are to become a specimen of what he can do. So then when you come into contact with someone else and you share this with them, what he has done in your life, they would be okay with fearing a God like that. And the word fear there doesn't mean to be afraid. It means to honor, to revere, to adore. So they would want to adore God's character because they've seen the character of God in your life. They've seen the change that God did in you. And so they said, whoa, God helped you to overcome what? God healed you from what? Having themselves going through addictions, needing healing, seeing that God did this healing, this liberating work of freeing you and I from addictions. They then say, well, wow. If God can forgive you and God can change you like that, maybe he could do that same thing for me. Friends, the reason that we are called to fear God as we close, I want you to go back with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament. Go back with me to Psalm chapter 130. This is one of my favorite Psalms. Psalms 130. The reason that men will fear God is because they see what he has done in your life. And they see especially the forgiving character of God. We're going to read Psalm 130 verses 1 through 4. This is the psalmist speaking here. And this blew my mind because, you know, it says in, in, the, in the first angel's message, fear God and give him glory. And then the next part says a very solemn, solemn thought. It says, for the hour of his what? His judgment. Now we read that word and we're like, whoa, this is scary. This is scary. But... Even though it's solemn, friends, when you have hope in solemnity, it removes the fear. You see, in that judgment, you have a high priest who is both your judge and your lawyer. So, so once that's the case, friends, you have nothing to fear, right? And that high priest is in the work of forgiving. This is what it says here in Psalm 130. It says, out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, here it is. If you, Lord, Jehovah, should mark iniquities. O Lord, who shall stand? Now here's the verse. But there is what with thee? Forgiveness with thee that you may be feared. So why do you fear God? Because there's forgiveness with him. You don't fear him because he's going to zap you. You don't fear him because he's, he's like someone looking out, waiting for when you mess up so he can strike. You fear him because he's that good. He's a God who delights in forgiving and not just forgiving, but changing. 
Friends, I pray that this message made sense to each and every one of us. We've seen that on the platform of our faith, God does this powerful work. As he moves us from one faith to the next as it concerns his goodness, he is able to justify, cleanse us from from our past. He's able to sanctify, change us from what we were before. And he's able to glorify in that as he changes us, he reveals his character through us. Friends, may that be the prayer for each and every one of our lives, that as we sit here as God's people today, we can be a testimony, not an obstruction, but a testimony of God's goodness, drawing people to the Son of Man. Please look us up online at the1-80.org and at the 180 YouTube channel. Please reach out to us with any questions or prayer requests. Until next time, thanks for listening.